Hello, and welcome to the Relax With Me podcast. I'm your host, Sonia. Today we'll be reading again from The Maine Woods by Henry David Thoreau. Before we get started, may I ask you, dear listener, to please like, share, follow, and rate the the podcast. You can find more about me on my website and how to support me on the website podcast page. So visit the show notes for more information. As we get started to settle in today for our read aloud time, let's make sure that we are truly ready to relax, making our environment more conducive to letting go of the day's worries and calming ourselves down so that maybe we could even drift off to sleep. We might want to grab a pillow, a blanket, take care of the dog or the cat or the kids or the cell phone so that we are able to take this time out just for ourselves to quiet our mind and allow our body to rest. Reading from The Maine Woods by Henry David Thoreau. This is part two, entitled Chess and Cook. At 5 p.m., September 13, 1853, I left Boston in the steamer for Bangor by the outside course. It was a warm and still night, warmer probably on the water than on the land, and the sea was as smooth as a small lake in summer, merely rippled. The passengers went singing on the deck as in a parlor till 10 o'clock, We passed a vessel on her beam ends on a rock just outside the islands, and some of us thought that she was the wrapped ship which ran, on her side so low that she drank water in her keel-plowed air, not considering that there was no wind, and that she was under bare poles. Now we have left the islands behind and are off the hunt. We behold those features which the discoverer saw apparently unchanged. Now we see the Cape Ann lights and now pass near a small village-like fleet of mackerel fishers at anchor, probably off Gloucester. They salute us with a shout from their low decks, but I understand their good evening to mean, Don't run against me, sir. From the wonders of the deep we go below to yet deeper sleep. And then the absurdity of being waked up in the night by a man who wants the job of blacking your boots. It is more inevitable than seasickness and may have something to do with it. It is like the ducking you get on crossing the line the first time. I trusted that these old customs were abolished, that they, with the same propriety, insist on blacking your face. I heard of one man who complained that somebody had stolen his boots in the night, and when he found them, he wanted to know what they had done to them. They'd spoiled them. He never put that stuff on them, and the boot black narrowly escaped paying damages. Anxious to get out of the whale's belly, I rose early and joined some old salts who were smoking by a dim light on a sheltered part of the deck. We were just getting into the river. They knew all about it, of course. I was proud to find that I had stood the voyage so well and was not in the least digested. We brushed up and washed and watched the first signs of dawn through an open port, but the day seemed to hang fire. We inquired the time. None of my companions had a chronometer. At length, an African prince rushed by, observing, Twelve o'clock, gentlemen, 
and blew out the light. It was moonrise, so I slunk down into the monster's bowels again. The first land we make is Monhegan Island before dawn, and next St. George's Islands, seeing two or three lights. Whitehead, with its bare rocks and funeral bell, is interesting. Next, I remember that the Camden Hills attracted my eyes, and afterward the hills about Frankfurt. We reached Bangor about noon. When I arrived, my companion that was to be had gone upriver and engaged an Indian, Joe, a son of the governor, to go with us to the lake. Joe had conducted two white men a moose hunting in the same direction the year before. He arrived by cars at Bangor that evening with his canoe and a companion, Mr. Solomon, who was going to leave Bangor the following Monday with Joe's father by way of Penobscot, and join Joe in moose hunting at the lake when we had done with him. They took supper at my friend's house and lodged in his barn, saying that they should fare worse than, the, than that in the woods. They only made Watch bark a little when they came to the door in the night for water, for he does not like Indians. The next morning, Joe and his canoe were put on board on board the stage for Moosehead Lake, sixty and odd miles distant, an hour before we started an open wagon. We carried hard bread, pork, smoked beef, tea, sugar, etc. Seemingly enough for a regiment, the sight of which brought together reminded me by what ignoble means we had maintained our ground hitherto. We went by the avenue road, which is quite straight and very good, northwestward toward Moosehead Lake, through more than a dozen flourishing towns with almost every one its academy. Not one of which, however, is on my general atlas, published, alas, in 1824. So much are they before the age, or I behind it. The earth must have been considerably lighter to the shoulders of General Atlas then. It rained all this day until the middle of the next forenoon, concealing the landscape almost entirely. But we had hardly got out of the streets of Bangor before I began to be exhilarated by the sight of the wild fir and spruce tops and those of other primitive evergreens peering through the mist in the horizon. It was like the sight and odor of a cake to a schoolboy. He who rides and keeps the beaten track studies the fences cheaply. Chiefly, near Bangor, the fence posts, on account of the frosts heaving them in the clay soil, were not planted in the ground, but were mortised into a transverse horizontal beam lying on the surface. Afterwards, the prevailing fences were log ones, was sometimes a Virginia fence, or else rails slanted over crossed stakes. And these zigzagged or played leapfrog all the way to the lake, keeping just ahead of us. After getting out of the Penobscot Valley, the country was unexpectedly level, or consisted of very even and equal swells, for twenty or thirty miles, never rising above the general level, but affording, it is said, a very good prospect in clear weather, with frequent views of Katadine, straight roads and long hills. The houses were far apart, commonly small and of one story, but framed. There was very little land under cultivation, yet the forest did not often border the road. The stumps were frequently as high as one's head, showing the depth of the snows. 
The white haycaps, drawn over small stacks of beans or corn in the field on account of the rain, were a novel sight to me. We saw large flocks of pigeons and several times came within a rod or two of partridges in the road. My companion said that in one journey out of Bangor, he and his son had shot sixty partridges from his buggy. The mountain ash was now very handsome, and also the wayfarer's tree or hobble bush, with its ripe purple berries mixed with red. The Canada thistle, an introduced plant, was the prevailing weed all the way to the lake. The roadside in many places and fields not long cleared, being densely filled with it as with a crop, to the exclusion of everything else. There were also whole fields full of ferns, now rusty and withering, which in older countries are commonly confined to wet ground. There were very few flowers, even allowing for the lateness of the season. It chanced that I saw no asters in bloom along the road for fifty miles, though they were so abundant then in Massachusetts, except in one place or two of the asters, and no goldenrods, till within twenty miles of Monson, where I saw a three-ribbed one. There were many late buttercups, however, and the two fireweeds, commonly where there had been a burning, and at last the pearly everlasting. I noticed occasionally very long troughs which supplied the road with water, and my companion said that three dollars annually were granted by the state to one man in each school district, who provided and maintained a suitable water trough by the roadside for use of the travelers. A piece of intelligence as refreshing to me as the water itself. That legislature did not sit in vain. It was an oriental act, which made me wish that I was still further down east, another Maine law, which I hope we may get in Massachusetts. That state is banishing bar rooms from its highways and conducting the mountain springs thither. The country was first decidedly mountainous in Garland, Sangerville, and onwards, twenty-five or thirty miles from Bangor. At Sangerville, where we stopped at mid-afternoon to warm and dry ourselves, the landlord told us that he found a wilderness where we found him. At a fork in the road between Abbott and Monson, about twenty miles from Moosehead Lake, I saw a guidepost surmounted by a pair of moose horns spreading four or five feet with the word Monson painted on one blade and the name of some other town on the other. They are sometimes used for ornamental hat trees together with deer's horns in front of entries, but after the experience which I shall relate, I trust that I shall have a better excuse for killing a moose than that I may hang my hat on his horns. We reached Monson fifty miles from Bangor and thirteen from the lake after dark. At four o'clock the next morning in the dark and still in the rain, we pursued our journey. Close to the academy in this town, they have erected a sort of gallows for pupils to practice on. I thought that they might as well hang all at once who need to go through such exercises in so new a country, where there is nothing to hinder their living an outdoor life. Better omit Blair and take the air. The country about the south end of the lake is quite mountainous, and the road began to feel the effects of it. There is one hill which, it is calculated, it takes twenty-five minutes to ascend. In many places the road was in that condition called repaired, having just been whittled into the required semi-cylindrical form with the shovel and scraper, 
with all the softest inequalities in the middle, like a hog's back with the bristles up. And Jehu was expected to keep astride of the spine. As you looked off each side of the bare sphere into the horizon, the ditches were awful to behold. A vast hollow hollowness, like that between Saturn and his ring. At a tavern hereabouts, the hostler greeted our horse as an old acquaintance, though he did not remember the driver. He said that he had taken care of that little mare for a short time a year or two before at the Mount Kineo house, and thought she was not in as good a condition as then, every man to his trade. I am not acquainted with a single horse in the world, not even the one that kicked me. Already we had thought that we saw Moosehead Lake from a hilltop, where an extensive fog filled the distant lowlands, but we were mistaken. It was not till we were within a mile or two of its south end that we got our first view of it, a suitably wild-looking sheet of water sprinkled with small, low islands, which were covered with shaggy spruce and other wild wood seen over the infant port of Greenville, with mountains on each side and far in the north, and a steamer's smoke pipe rising above a roof. A pair of moose horns ornamented a corner of the public house where we left our horse, and a few rods distant lay the small steamer Moosehead Captain King. There was no village and no summer road any farther in this direction, but a winter road, that is, one passable only when deep snow covers its inequalities, from Greenville up the east side of the lake to Lily, ba Lily Bay, about 12 miles. It was here I was first introduced to Joe. He had ridden all the way on the outside of the stage the day before in the rain, giving way to ladies, and was well wetted. As it still rained, he asked if we were going to put it through. He was a good-looking Indian, 24 years old, apparently of unmixed blood, short and stout, with a broad face and reddish complexion, and eyes, methinks, narrower and more turned up at the corners than ours, answering to the description of his race. Beside his underclothing, he wore a red flannel shirt, woolen pants, and a black cosseth hat, the ordinary dress of the lumberman, and to a considerable extent, of the Penobscot Indian. When afterward he had occasion to take off his shoes and stockings, I was struck with the smallness of his feet. He had worked a good deal as a lumberman, and apparently he identified himself with that class. He was the only one of the party who possessed an India rubber jacket. The top strip or edge of his canoe was worn nearly through by friction on the stage. At eight o'clock, the steamer, with her bell and whistle scaring the moose, summoned us on board. She was a well-appointed little boat, commanded by a gentlemanly captain with patent life seats and a metallic lifeboat, and dinner on board if you wish. She is chiefly used by lumberers for the transportation of themselves, their boats, and supplies, but also by hunters and tourists. There was another steamer named Amphor amphitrite laid up close by but apparently her name was not more trite than her hull there were also two or three large sailboats in port these beginnings of commerce on a lake in the wilderness are very interesting these larger white birds that come to keep company with the gulls there were but few passengers and not one female among them a 
a St. Francis Indian with his canoe and moose hides, two explorers for lumber, three men who landed at Sandbar Island, and a gentleman who lives on Deer Island, 11 miles up the lake and also owns Sugar Island, between which and the former the steamer runs. These, I think, were all beside ourselves. The saloon was some kind of musical instrument, cherubim or seraphim, to soothe the angry waves, and there, very properly, was tacked up the map of the public lands of Maine and Massachusetts, a copy of which I had in my pocket. The heavy rain confining us to this, confining us to the saloon a while, I discoursed with the proprietor of Sugar Island on the condition of the world in Old Testament times. But at length, leaving this subject as fresh as we found it, he told me that he had lived about this lake twenty or thirty years, and yet had not been to the head of it for twenty-one years. He faces the other way. The explorers had a fine new birch on board, larger than ours, in which they had come up the river, and they had several, message, several messes of trout already. They were going to the neighborhood of Eagle and Chamberlain Lakes, or the headwaters of the St. John, and offered to keep us company as far as we went. The lake today was rougher than I found the ocean, either going or returning, and Joe remarked that it would swamp his birch. Off Lily Bay, is it, a, it is a dozen miles wide, but it is much broken by the islands. The scenery is not merely wild, but varied and interesting. Mountains were seen farther or nearer on all sides but the northwest, their summits now lost in the clouds. But Mount Kineo is the principal feature of the lake and more exclusively belongs to it. After leaving Greenville at the foot, which is the nucleus of a town some eight or ten years old, you see but three or four houses for the whole length of the lake, or about forty miles. Three of them the public houses at which the steamer is advertised to stop, and the shore is an unbroken wilderness. The prevailing woods seem to be spruce, fir, birch, and rock maple. You could easily distinguish the hardwood from the soft, or black growth as it is called, at a great distance, the former being smooth, round-topped, and light green, with a bowery and cultivated look. Mount Kineo, at which the boat touched, is a peninsula with a narrow neck about midway on the lake to the east side. The celebrated precipice is on the east or land side of this and is so high and perpendicular that you can jump from the top many hundred feet into the water which makes up behind the point. A man on board told us that an anchor had been sunk ninety fathoms at its base before reaching bottom. Probably it will be discovered ere long that some Indian maiden jumped off of it for love once, for true love could never have found a path more to its mind. We passed quite close to the rock here, since it is a very bold shore, and I observed marks of a rise of four or five feet on it. The St. Francis Indian expected to take in his boy here, but he was not at the landing. The father's sharp eyes, however, detected a canoe with his boy in it far away under the mountain, though no one else could see it. Where is the canoe? asked the captain. I don't see it. But he held on nevertheless, and by and by it hove in sight. We reached the head of the lake about noon. The weather had in the meanwhile cleared up, though the mountains were still capped with clouds. 
Seen from this, this point, the mountain and two other allied mountains ranging with it northeasterly presented a very strong family likeness, as if all cast in one mold. The steamer here approached in a long pier projecting from the northern wilderness and built of some of its logs, and whistled, where not a cabin nor mortal was to be seen. The shore was quite low with flat rocks on it, overhung with black ash, arborvitae, etc., which at first looked as if they did not care a whistle for us. There was not a single cabman to cry coach or inveigle us at the United States Hotel. At length, a Mr. Hinckley, who has a camp at the other end of the carry, appeared with a truck drawn by an ox and a horse over a rude log railway through the woods. The next thing was to get our canoe and effects over the carry from this lake, one of the heads of the Kennebec, onto the Penobscot River. This railway from the lake to the river occupied the middle of a clearing two or three rods wide and perfectly straight through the forest. We walked behind a cross while our baggage was drawn from behind. My companion went ahead to be ready for partridges while I followed, looking at the plants. This was an interesting botanical locality for one coming from the south to commence with. For many plants which ra are rather rare, and one or two which are not found at all in the eastern part of Massachusetts, grew abundantly between the rails, such as Labrador tea, Calmia glauca, Canada blueberry, which was still in fruit and a second time in bloom, Clintonia and Linnea borealis, which last a lumberer called Moxon, Creeping snowberry, painted trillium, large flowered billwort, etc. I fancied that the aster radula, diplopappus umbellatus, solidago lanceolatus, red trumpet weed, and many others which were conspicuously in bloom on the shore of the lake and on the carry had a peculiarly wild and primitive look there. The spruce and fir trees crowded to the track on each side to welcome us. The arborvitae, with its changing leaves, prompted us to make haste, and the sight of the canoe birch gave, spirit, gave us spirits to do so. Sometimes an evergreen just fallen lay across the track with its rich burden of cones, looking still fuller of life than our trees in the most favorable conditions. You did not expect to find such spruce trees in the wild woods, but they evidently attend to their toilets each morning even there. Through such a front yard did we enter that wilderness. There was a very slight rise above the lake, the country appearing like and perhaps being partly a swamp, and at length a gradual descent to the Penobscot, which I was surprised to find here a large stream from 12 to 15 rods wide, flowing from west to east, or at right angles with the lake, and not more than two and a half miles from it. The distance is nearly twice too great on the map of the public lands and on Colton's map of Maine, and Russell's stream is placed too far down. Jackson makes Moosehead Lake to be 960 feet high above water in Portland Harbor. It is higher than Chessencook, for the lumberers consider the Penobscot, where we stuck it, struck it 25 feet lower than Moosehead, though eight miles above it is said to be the highest, so that the water can be made to flow either way and the river falls a good deal between here and there. The carryman called this about 140 miles above the Bangor by river, or 200 from the ocean, and 55 miles below Hilton's on the Canada Road, 
the first clearing above, which is four and a half miles from the source of the Penobscot. At the north end of the carry, in the midst of a clearing of 60 acres or more, there was a log camp of the usual construction, with something more like a house adjoining for the accommodation of the carryman's family and passing lumberers. The bed of withered fir twigs smelled very sweet, though really very dirty. There was also a storehouse on the bank of the river containing pork, flour, iron, and birches locked up. We now proceeded to get our dinner, which always turned out to be tea, and to pitch canoes for the purpose of a large iron pot lay permanently on the bank. This we did in company with the explorers. Both Indians and whites use a mixture of rosin and grease for this purpose, that is for the pitching, not the dinner. Joe took a small brand from the fire and blew the heat and flame against the pitch on his birch and so melted and spread it. Sometimes he put his mouth over the suspected spot and sucked to see if it admitted air. And at one place where we stopped, he set his canoe high on crossed stakes and poured water into it. I narrowly watched his motions and listened attentively to his observations. For he had employed an Indian mainly that I might have an opportunity to study his ways. I heard him swear once mildly during this operation about his knife being as dull as a hoe, an accomplishment which he owed to his intercourse with the whites, and he remarked, We ought to have some tea before we start. We shall be hungry before we kill that moose. At mid-afternoon we embarked on the Penobscot. Our birch was nineteen and a half feet long by two and a half at the widest part, and fourteen inches deep within, both ends alike and painted green, which Joe thought affected the pitch and made it leak. This, I think, was a middling-sized one. That of the explorers was much larger, though probably not much longer. This carried us three with our baggage, weighing in all between five hundred and fifty and six hundred pounds. We had two heavy, though slender, rock maple paddles, one of them a bird's-eye maple. Joe placed birch bark on the bottom for us to sit on and slanted cedar splints against the crossbars protect our backs, while he himself sat upon a crossbar in the stern. The baggage occupied the middle or widest part of the canoe. We also paddled by turns in the bows, now sitting with our legs extended, now sitting upon our legs, and now rising upon our knees. But I found none of these positions endurable, and was reminded of the complaints of the old Jesuit missionaries of the torture they had endured from long confinement and constrained positions in canoes, in their long voyages from Quebec to the Huron country. But afterwards, I sat on the crossbars or stood up, and experienced no inconvenience. It was dead water for a couple of miles. The river had been raised about two feet by the rain, and lumberers were hoping for a flood sufficient to bring down the logs that were left in the spring. Its banks were seven or eight feet high and densely covered with white and black spruce, which I think must be the commonest trees thereabouts. Fir, arborvitae, canoe, yellow and black birch, rock, mountain, a few red maples, beech, black and mountain ash, the large-toothed aspen, many civil-looking elms now embrowned along the stream and at a first a few hemlocks also. We had not gone far before I was startled by seeing what I thought was an Indian encampment covered with a red flag on the bank and exclaimed, Camp! 
to my comrades. I was slow to discover that it was a red maple changed by the frost. The immediate shores were also densely covered with the speckled alder, red osier, shrubby willows or sallows, and the like. There were a few yellow lily pads still left, half drowned along the sides, and sometimes a white one. Many fresh tracks of moose were visible where the water was shallow, and on the shore and the lily stems were freshly bitten off them. After paddling about two miles, we parted company with the explorers and turned up Lobster Stream, which comes in on the right from the southeast. This was six or eight rods wide and appeared to run nearly parallel with the Penobscot. Joe said that it was so called from small freshwater lobsters found in it. My companion wished to look for moose signs and intended, if it proved worthwhile, to camp up that way since the Indian advised it. On account of the rise of the Penobscot, the water ran up this stream quite to the pond of the same name, one or two miles. The Spencer Mountains, east to the north end of Moosehead Lake, were now in plain sight in front of us. The kingfisher blew before us. The pigeon woodpecker was seen and heard, and nuthatches and chickadees were close at hand. Joe said that they called the chickadee in his language. I will not vouch for the spelling or pronunciation of what possibly was never spelt or pronounced by an English mouth before, but pronounced after him till he said it would do. We passed close to a woodcock, which stood perfectly still on the shore, with feathers puffed up, as if sick. We saw kingfisher, bear, Indian devil, mountain ash. This was very abundant and beautiful. Moose tracks were not so fresh along this stream, except in a small creek about a mile up it, where a large log had lodged in the spring, marked W. Cross Girdle Crowfoot. We saw a pair of moose horns on the shore, and I asked Joe if a moose had shed them, but he said there was a head attached to them, and I knew that it, they did not shed their heads more than once in their lives. After ascending about a mile and a half to within a short distance of Lobster Lake, we returned to the Penobscot. Just below the mouth of the lobster we found quick water, and the river expanded twenty or thirty rods in width. The moose tracks were quite numerous and fresh here. We noticed a great many in places narrow and well-trodden paths by which they had come down to the river and where they had slid on the steep and clayey bank. Their tracks were either close to the edge of the stream, those of the calves distinguishable from the others, or in shallow water, the holes made by their feet in the soft bottom being visible for a long time. They were particularly numerous where there was a small bay or Pocalogon, as it is called, bordered by a strip of meadow or separated from the river by a low peninsula covered with coarse grass, wool grass, etc., wherein they had waded back and forth and eaten the pads. We detected the remains of one in such a spot. At one place, where we landed to pick up a summer duck which my companion had shot, Joe peeled a canoe birch for bark for his hunting horn. He then asked if we were not going to get the other duck, for his sharp eyes had seen another fall in the bushes a little further along, and my companion obtained it. I now began to notice the bright red berries of the tree cranberry, 
which grows eight or ten feet high, mingled with the alders and cornell along the shore. There was less hardwood than at first. After proceeding a mile and three quarters below the mouth of the lobster, we reached about sundown a small island at the head of what Joe called the Moosehorn Deadwater. The Moosehorn, in which he was going to hunt that night, coming in about three miles below. And on the upper end of this, we decided to camp. On a point at the lower end lay the carcass of a moose killed a month or more before. We concluded merely to prepare our camp and leave our baggage here that all might be ready when we returned from moose hunting. Though I had not come a-hunting and felt some compunctions about accompanying the hunters, I wished to see a moose near at hand and was not sorry to learn how the Indian managed to kill one. I went as a reporter or chaplain to the hunters and the chaplain has been known to carry a gun himself. After clearing a small space amid the dense spruce and fir trees, we covered the damp ground with a shingling of fir twigs, and while Joe was preparing his birch horn and pitching his canoe, for this had to be done whenever we stopped long enough to build a fire, and was the principal labor which he took upon himself at such times, we collected fuel for the night, large, wet, and rotting logs, which had lodged at the head of the island, for our hatchet was too small for effective chopping, but we did not kindle a fire lest the moose should smell it. Joe set up a couple of forked stakes and prepared a half a dozen poles, ready to cast one of our blankets over in case it rained in the night, which precaution, however, was omitted the next night. We also plucked the ducks which had been killed for breakfast. While we were thus engaged in the twilight, we heard faintly, far down the stream, what sounded like two strokes of a woodchopper's axe, echoing dully through the grim solitude. We are wont to liken many sounds heard at a distance in the forest to the stroke of an axe because they resemble each other under those circumstances, and that is the one we commonly hear there. When we told Joe of this, he exclaimed, By George, I'll bet that was a moose. They make a noise like that. These sounds affected us strangely, and by their very resemblance to a familiar one, where they probably had no different in origin, enhanced the impression of solitude and wilderness. That's all I'm reading for today. If you'd like to hear more from the Maine woods, please let me know. I hope you have a lovely day.